Welcome to Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity and hosted by Flipcasting, Director of Fundraising. Solidarity works to raise awareness of the injustices faced by refugees and asylum seekers worldwide and fundraises to provide grants to NGOs providing vital services in Greece. In each episode, I'll be joined by a different guest to break down an issue facing migrants and seek to understand the sustainable solutions. Today we're going to be talking about the provision of healthcare for refugees and the impact COVID has had on this. And I'm joined by Dr. Siana Maruf Shafi, founder and chair of the trustees of Kitrinos Healthcare, a grassroots NGO providing medical aid to vulnerable migrants in Greece. Siana, thank you so much for being here. Hello, hi, thanks for having me. COVID-19 has exposed refugees and asylum seekers to a new threat regarding their health, and it's led to growing concern about how the pandemic specifically will impact them. At the moment, there have already been outbreaks in asylum seeker centres in Germany, Switzerland, the UK and various other places. But the risk to refugee and asylum seeker healthcare isn't just COVID and hasn't just begun recently. In Jordan, we've lately seen the world's first vaccination centre set up in a refugee camp as of the middle of February. As part of its national vaccination plan, anyone living in the country, including refugees and asylum seekers, is entitled to receive the vaccine free of charge. Refugees have been included in every aspect of the public health response to the pandemic, including this vaccination programme with protective measures in camps throughout the pandemic being the same as outside the camps, such as being included in education programmes and Jordan preparing hospitals within the camps to deal with COVID if it breaks out. This has led to the proportion of refugees with COVID surprisingly low compared to in other places at 1.6% compared to 3% in the general Jordan population according to the UNHCR. But in many cases, refugees and asylum seekers are bottom of the priority list for accessing healthcare, including regarding the COVID response. Kitrinos and Solidarity both work in Greece, where the approach has been very different to what we've seen in Jordan. So, Siana, can you just tell us a bit about why refugees are important to be included in national healthcare schemes? So, I mean, the, the refugee healthcare situation and the reason why I became involved in the first place has always been dire. Um, when I, I mean, as a medical professional, so I'm a GP, and as I um, first went out to volunteer, I thought, you know, I was going to do five days short stint to kind of do my bit, you know. Um, I was really overwhelmed by the fact that a lot of people um, who come, you know, across to Greece in particular, across the dinghies on the boats, um, they self-prioritise or they get selected out of family members. Everyone pools together cash to send these people along because they get self-selected because they suffer with a health condition. So immediately, the ones who are coming across, in my observation, for example, the ones that really just want another chance, you know, or they want a family member to have a chance. Everyone pulls together 
to prioritise these people and get them across so they can have a chance of better health care. And of course, Greece, the West, the EU, the world at large, thereafter to them is is far better than their than their countries undergoing bombardment and you know Syria the babies were not being vaccinated for many years now you know many of them were born and brought up in old school buildings where they sheltered and um so even basic healthcare is missing but certainly the the people who come in my opinion are so vulnerable so yeah i mean the, it's like already a vulnerable population, you know, never mind the effects of possibly having COVID-19. I think it's also, it's lovely to hear you say that um, the actual numbers, because this time last year, when I was sitting, wondering what to do, you know, thinking how we were going to prevent COVID from coming to the camps, because obviously we, our organisation in particular, we're very low budget, we rely on volunteers to actually help deliver healthcare services. Um, but we realise that this COVID-19 particular is spreading because of travel. And so if we then have to allow volunteers to come in um, and no one was being tested at the time, it was a real hairy, scary moment, sleepless nights for me, for sure. Of course, at Solidarity, we focus mainly on enabling refugees and asylum seekers to access their human rights. And the main one we focus on is the right to seek asylum. But there is also a human right, which is the right to health. And this is something that is clearly very sidelined in these camps, particularly in areas of Greece, which is why your work is so important and so absolutely crucial, because the states aren't fulfilling this duty themselves. And I think the amount that the country themselves ignores these issues is just symptomatic of a wider, a wider issue regarding the treatment of refugees. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be great if you could speak a bit about how the pandemic developed um, in camps in Greece and how it affected those living there um, and how that's been over the past 12 months. Um, sure, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and summarise. I think, uh, with hindsight, it's it's actually a, a very kind thing in this situation because, um, luckily, uh, from the moment the pandemic started, let's say April 2020, and certainly uh, Italy right next door was starting to go into lockdown um, very rapidly, and we remember, you know, how awful it was in Italy. Um, we were all so fearful. Uh, most of all, the people themselves, they actually had this really ominous feeling that they were going to be left to die in these camps. Um, of course, as soon as the Greek government then started um, doing quite heavy lockdowns, and, you know, in some ways we do applaud the, the authorities at the time who who, who did uh utilize this heavy lockdown to genuinely control the rise of number of cases in Europe and, and actually they did really well if we if you think back. Um, the issue with the lockdown however was was that the, the people I mean it, it actually protected them and so the UNHCR statistics that you quoted earlier to say that the case numbers were very low 
um, it was actually a side effect. I mean, although it created a lot of fear in them and they were sort of anxious, we were anxious about what was going to happen to them. We were still, as medical professionals, we were allowed to access the camp. And certainly when there were cases um, who needed to get to the hospital or we needed them, you know, to go and have a antenatal check, we could kind of advocate for them to, to get the necessary care. But I think the um, the actual number of cases were very low overall. Um, and in fact, in Moria, where we worked in on the island of Lesbos, notorious, um, infamous camp of Moria, which obviously eventually got burnt down, um, the first case uh, was confirmed in September, you know, um, which is which is actually we managed all those months with full PPE for our staff. We we had to issue we had to make masks in the end for for the people living in the camp. We made about twenty two thousand masks times two, I think, because um, there was there was talk that masks were coming from China, being donated via massive EU type organizations and the EU itself but they never actually in our experience over this last year materialized and that actually I think will be a really interesting thing to think now about if they you know this concept of whether they're going to then be offered vaccinations me personally I think there'll be a lot of talk but it'll be quite interesting to see how much action actually comes out of it but eventually it was that first case and uh, 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 the first case caused about 20 to 30 pretty quickly within two to three days. Within a week, there was 200 cases in the camp. And then it was actually because of this phenomenon of this, we knew it was going to explode. The people themselves decided to take matters into their own hands. And sadly, the, the camp, I mean, it's mixed really feelings, but the, the camp did burn down. But luckily, no one was injured because I think they sort of premeditated and planned it because for them, they didn't want to be left and excluded and ostracized by society to just get COVID and die. Definitely. And once there's one case in an environment like that where social distancing is almost impossible and there's a lack of access to adequate sanitation, running water, soap, it was always going to increase much more quickly than it would have in an area with better conditions. So asylum seekers are then much more vulnerable to diseases, particularly very infectious and contagious diseases like COVID. How did you find your organisation or medical NGOs more broadly having to kind of adapt and change your operations to continue working effectively throughout the pandemic? So again, this time last year, um, I mean, so the beginning of April 2020, I was actually in panic mode because shortly before that, I think it was actually in March, 1st of March, we'd um, we'd had these awful attacks by um, fascists on in Greece who were attacking volunteer-based organisations and the volunteers themselves and being really threatening towards us because there's this kind of perception that it's because of NGOs that the refugees are coming along in the first place seeking refuge because we're providing such 
whatever it is we're providing a you know a, a sleeping bag a blanket and a, a bit of basic health care um, uh, nothing to do of course with the wars that they're fleeing from or all the other atrocities they're experiencing back home so so we had awful attacks then and and actually I found myself in this situation where uh, for all, I would say 90% of the volunteer doctors and nurses evacuated after those attacks in March. And we were left with a sort of a, a, a skeleton team of staff. And then this issue of trying to bring people there who could stay sufficiently long enough to go through quarantine uh, and to sustain themselves as well as sustain the organization. And this is where, of course, Solidarity became involved and supported us in that first kind of our first uh, setup for setting up um, like a nightingale type unit and, and isolation unit. And we partnered with a few people and we all got together. We worked together to make sure we had enough supplies and people did, you know, I think, again, I would say it was all donations through smaller NGOs, smaller volunteer-led organizations um, uh, and then we set up the sewing factory in one of the warehouses we we had where all the women about 100 women did you know shift to 50 women for 12 hours followed by another 50 women did the sewing of these wonderful masks that they were reusable so they could wash them whatever little water they could get but yes it's a different world um, and and we did uh, we were doing extra temperature checks. Um, you know, the staff were having to be careful because, again, there was this issue for us, like if one of our members of staff got ill, then potentially the whole household would have to be quarantined. We have two volunteer homes, so we had to divide them into two teams. So they worked completely separately. It was it was <laughs> tough. It was really, really tough. And people doing very long shifts. But luckily, as I said, we didn't have to face with actual COVID until the autumn. And then, of course, began the second wave and the people were completely mixed up in the streets. Um, quarantining, everything fell apart. Everybody was exposed to everybody. But again, you know, there might be something in there where the people themselves were protected in that they we didn't see rising huge numbers of cases rising and the um due to an earlier piece of work actually in in march and may uh, april and may we had um as an organization we had campaigned really hard with UNHCR to identify patients on our list who we deemed as vulnerable so all the people who are being selected now for um um isolation or shielding we identified the elderly, those with chronic diseases who were taking regular chronic medication. Um, and we provided this list of 500 or so people um, to UNHCR who were really helpful. And they worked alongside uh, us to help campaign um, to get these people and their immediate families out of the camp. I'm not sure how successful it was, to be honest, but you know, we did something and it made me help have a better night of sleep. And, and certainly we saw busloads of people and they had a sort of an order in, in which to prioritise the people, because although they're all vulnerable, these would have been like the most extremely vulnerable. So that was a good piece of work to do. And we hope that also helped prevent really 
you know, things getting quite diabolically out of control in the camp. Definitely. I guess that's where organisations like yours can really play such a key role is in the knowing individuals and knowing individual situations and being able to identify and recognise who is most vulnerable and who requires that support or to be moved location, which bigger organisations or state groups probably aren't going to pay attention to in the same way and aren't going to prioritise taking care of these individuals that you know on a personal level in the same way. Uh, This is where I would always encourage people who, who want to set up smaller things we are very agile. We can make decisions. I'm a decision maker and the next person down is the implementer. Whereas <clears throat> it's really funny, one of the programs we did, we partnered with MSF actually, because MSF were having an awful time getting uh, recruiting staff for the isolation unit, um, their processes for recruiting and um, actually deploying Um, staff takes six months we didn't have six months and so we got together and very quickly managed to um, use our staff whom we vetted and we pushed through you know quickly um, to work in places that like an isolation unit that they set up which was really nice it was nice to be able to work and, and support you know even the big guys that's amazing and so important and having that agility has really the importance of that has really been highlighted in the past year and other organisations, the big ones, do lose that very quickly through kind of vetting processes, as you say. Um, So moving on slightly, um, obviously the kind of conditions in the camp itself, the lack of social distancing and the lack of sanitation is a really big challenge regarding healthcare. Um, but what other kind of health challenges or barriers to accessing healthcare do refugees and asylum seekers in Greece experience? Um, if you think about, um, so I'm a UK GP and I do, you know, my shifts here. If you think about the impact it's had on us, you know, all the routine stuff being cancelled. Um, well, it was no different for them. So people who we had um, identified as needing a little bit of extra support by seeing a specialist in the hospital, well, all the appointments were cancelled, you know. So um, I remember one particular case I'd come across was the a, a son of a, um, a doctor. She's actually a doctor in Afghanistan. Um, and she was so worried because her son was passing blood in his urine. And we did as much as we could in terms of treating like an, uh, a bacterial infection and making sure it wasn't going to spread to his kidneys or indeed into his blood. But ultimately, he would need um, uh, an ultrasound scan or some other form of like specialised testing and specialised care that would only be available in the hospital. Um, and it was really tricky to have to explain to a very educated young mother um, that, you know, we would try. And I think we did. We might have even got her a private opinion at some point, you know, because that was what I would do is I would have a low threshold to to get people extra care by just paying for it if we needed to. So we've paid for so 
so just to say at least in in places like Greece there is things of there are things available they're nowhere near as expensive as as um uh, say a scan uh, in in the UK so you know a consultation there actually costs 40 euros a private consultation so it's like nothing you know for for us we could easily just at least get them the opinion and then with them seeing a greek specialist they can have a specialist report done if there was indeed something more that needed to be uh, followed followed up with um and and prioritize cases and, and actually would work quite closely with the asylum services to make sure those type of patients were advocated for and how do different languages work when accessing healthcare? Because a lot of the language is so specialised to kind of specific medical situations. Is there an adequate like number of translators around? Are there ever issues with those kind of barriers? Oh, completely. I mean, the, the language barrier. So often, even if a specialist was available, the appointment was available, transport was available, if there was no translator, the consultation would fail to happen. Um, so they're absolutely crucial. And it's actually one of our pet projects as an organisation in Kitrinos is we, we train interpreters. So we take people who uh, have that background, like I explained uh, in one of my examples, we met a young woman who was a doctor herself. Well, if they have an inclination to want to develop themselves, we will provide them with that training um, and give them the opportunity of, of actually helping us run our consultations. At one point in the camp, Moria, as you know, had multiple nationalities we had about 25 documented languages and dialects of people there. And it was one of the reasons why Moria in particular was so difficult because it was such a mishmash of different types of people, um, like the whole of London condensed into one square metre equivalent, like, you know, that, and, and of course there was going to be difficulties so yes, I mean cultural boundaries, huge cultural boundaries. Um, we had people who'd come from uh, places like uh, the Congo, Afri African Republic, and uh, Sudan, um, and then of course the Middle East, Afghanistan. I think in my time there, I've actually come across a, um, kids um, who came from Sri Lanka. So that's my birth country. Um, they'd actually managed to get there somehow. You know, again, their auntie was a single woman, a mother. She was looking after her children's, um, her sister's children. Her sister died and she collected all the money she had for them and bought them tickets out of Sri Lanka. And then they had to make their way, the rest of it, on their own. That's it. So you do, don't you? I mean, we would if we were in the if tables were turned. This is what I always keep thinking is that if the tables were turned and we ended up in a war again, you know, God forbid, we'd have to do the same, wouldn't we? We would prioritize our kids for safety and our vulnerable for, for safety and, and better care. Yeah, of course, you're going to want the best treatment and the best life possible for your family members and for your children. And I think at Solidarity, that's something we really focus on. It's just them wanting the best life and also the life that they're entitled to ask for in fleeing 
persecution and conflict and applying for asylum, they're use, utilizing their human right. There are no requirements for a human right. That's the very basis of it. Well, you you just you just have to be human to get to to qualify, <laughs> and that's an irony in itself. Because sometimes, as a humanitarian doctor, I do reflect on how our pets in our you know civilized parts of the world get treated so much better than human beings, and it really pains me to to to, to realize that. I, I don't get me wrong; I love animals. I have three, uh, at least three at the moment at home, three cats, but it it shouldn't be that humans are less important. You know, it should not be that. Definitely. According to the UNHCR at the moment, of the 151 countries currently developing COVID-19 vaccination programmes, 106 have explicitly included refugees already, and 33 are in the process of doing so. So obviously that's the vast majority. Um, to, to your knowledge, is Greece doing this? Are they in the process of doing so? Do you know what their plan is? <laughs> it's an interesting question, and I would love to say um, that I knew. I think I've, I've had, there is there's apparently been a government announcement to say that there is a plan somewhere down the line to vaccinate uh, everybody. Um, in, I haven't seen anything in writing, but a bit like when they were promising um, PPE, basic things like masks or running water to the camps, you know, it never actually happened. And me as a medical provider ended up getting involved in things like my staff set up extra sinks and I remember seeing people just filling up big vats of water taking them to various locations in the camp so people could just wash their hands so seeing will be believing I know how how much of a struggle it is I know Britain are somewhat leading the way in that regard Uh, we're doing really well in the UK with our vaccination program Uh, but I have to say there's been nothing really official that I could see. I I think the intent might be there according to my sources. Um, But let's see what happens. I suspect delivering it in this situation, in this context, will be extremely difficult. Um, Well, financially, for a start, where's poor old Greece going to come up with a bunch of vaccines for, what is it, 60,000 extra people resident in their country? Definitely. And um, I guess final question. So trying to end on a bit of a more positive note. Um, What do you think some sustainable solutions are? Um, How do you envisage a world where refugees in Greece are able to receive equitable medical treatment and access to the health care that they need? I, I thank you for asking that question. I feel really, really quite strongly about this actually in that one of the things that 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 NGOs like ours have been blamed for is for causing a refugee crisis or at least that's what the what the 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 kind of the the topic of the day is if you like since well since the pandemic hit oh it's all because of the NGOs and the reality is that yeah, sure, governments can say what they want. The reality is that they need our help and we're prepared to help them. And we've got wonderful, good 
people like ourselves you know like so so the doctors and nurses who work with us the staff whom we've trained up some of them who were living in the camps themselves but you know excelled by sticking their neck out and wanting to do a bit more and they they we're all working together to blend in and support existing systems in Greece, for example, they've had a uh, economic crisis for some while and their own citizens are suffering. So at the moment, we're actually in this dilemma. We have about five or six different projects that we're trying to start off, particularly with the ending of the cash program for hundreds of, of people who apparently didn't no longer qualified. Um, and they've been made homeless on the streets in Athens. Um, so suddenly there's this huge um, uh, gap in healthcare, not only for the poorer uh, Greek um, uh, nationals, but but in addition these these um, the, the refugees who are now homeless and on the streets. So we have challenges constant, but we find keep finding solutions. So you know, even though offices are technically closed because of the pandemic, lockdown all sorts of things, we are able to um, deliver the healthcare. We're, we're just really excited that um, in Athens, for example, we're just on the verge of found premises where we can now start caring for the very same chronic patients who we managed to help evacuate from Lesvos, but were no doubt evacuated from other islands too, who are now potentially homeless, stranded in Athens with no cash, um, and certainly not enough cash to buy regular medication. We're really delighted to be able to announce that we will be fulfilling the deficit there and opening this clinic, prioritising uh, patients like that. So we're going through the hoops. We're going in for the for the long long haul here. That's so amazing, and it really does prove that people do look after people and individuals who do care and are committed to helping others can make such a big difference in cases like these and your work is so amazing it makes such a difference and we really appreciate you coming on this podcast to speak to us today about your experience thank you so much thank you for having me and thank you for doing what you're doing and thank you for starting as well um in your youth i that's my if i have one tiny regret is that i didn't do this sooner and you know every single one of you you will never regret any amount of time that you put towards caring for other fellow human beings <laughs> Thank you for listening to Right to Refuge. If you want to dig deeper into the issues discussed in this episode, we have collated further reading resources on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and share on social media. For more information about Solidarity, our guests and the work we do, all our links are in the show notes.